Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in our Johannesburg studios today is the Deputy Minister of Employment and Labor, Ms. Boitumelo Elizabeth Molloy. Welcome to the show, Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Uh, Amelia Melka, and thank you for hosting me in your studio. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. To begin with, if we look at the Department of Employment and Labor, it plays such an incredibly important role in society. Could you tell us about some of your objectives that you want to achieve during this term? As you would know, uh, that our workplace or the workplace in particular holds great importance in society. What happens at a workplace permeates through uh, to our society and the stability of the economy rests on the ability to maintain low unemployment rates and to provide say, a safe and productive workplace. And when there is a solid relationship between the workers and management at the workplace, there is obviously uh, product productivity. And, and I'm sure you are aware that uh, that's why uh, uh, we, through our labor market policies as a department, we strive to ensure that uh, unemployed people uh, are placed in uh, places of employment and we also provide uh, exceptional services to our people whether in the form of access to the unemployed uh, insurance fund benefits uh, among others but not necessarily limited to that in some of the service offerings that we provide in our department. And what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that are, are facing you in this portfolio? We believe that uh, uh, our labor market policies are intended to create an environment which is conducive to investment, among others, uh, economic growth, job creation, and decent work. And we therefore need to resolve the workplace dispute timelessly because the longer the disputes uh, continue, the more the economy get affected. So that we don't, uh, these disputes and the strikes that are there don't actually result in prolonged strikes, which costing the employers and workers respectively. Because remember, uh, if there is a strike, there is that policy of no work, no pay, and uh, mostly it affects our employees. Our workers gets are the mostly actually hardest hit. And for our economy to grow, we need to ensure that we are competitive as a country. And, and we have an, an entity as a Department of Employment and Labor uh, that helps companies to improve their competitiveness uh, and productivity, thereby trying to save jobs. And, and among others, our two funds, which is your compensation fund and the UIF, through their social responsibility investment, they work with the PIC uh, to ensure that we invest in job, more job creation activities, uh, such as the like of the Midupi uh, power stations, health facilities. Uh, we know that transformation of our labor markets has not taken off as we had envisaged as the ruling party uh, and as government, but we are trying to intensify our efforts 
to ensure that companies are transforming because it's a challenge. And there are two critical instruments that we are using currently, one being uh, uh, subjecting designated companies through a rigorous review. And secondly, we are reviewing the law to promulgate Section 53 of the Employment Equity, uh, which will then ensure that all companies doing business with the state are actually transforming. And, uh, and uh, we are checking that uh, in instances where people have been discriminated at in the workplaces, they might approach one of our entities, which is the CCMA, and we have most importantly reduced the principle, uh, actually introduced this principle of uh, equal pay for equal work value. And I'm, I'm sure you really understand why we are here. That's a, a very important part. And looking at some of these issues within the department, job creation is is critical. We've seen from Stats a release that there's 29% unemployment in the country. When we start looking towards the the neat sector of um, youth unemployment, where there's something like 3.3 million youth who are not working, they're not studying, and they are... The, the livelihood and, and the future that we've got coming into the country. And then as you mentioned now, in terms of receiving equal pay for work of, of equal value, that's a massive consideration for women in particular, where often, and we hear the statistic, I think it was the Institute of, of Race Relations, that states that generally women earn an income that is 23% less than their male counterparts. So being able to implement legislation and make companies accountable to their female workforce is really important. Yes, uh, um, just by recognizing and acknowledging the existence of this disparity, actually, um, of inequality among uh, uh, males and females, uh, just just that uh, it serves as the beginning for change, actually. And, and uh, one of the most difficult things about this imbalance and challenge is the fact that it, cre- it was created by our so- social construct uh, over centuries. And for us to have a more equitable distribution of unpaid work between men and women requires us to recognize the work we call housework as work, because that is actually the critical moment. <laughs> I mean, we need to be able to classify it and as such and where possible try to come up with legislation that can actually regulate such but also the ability to be home and run the household has a direct impact on the economy and the society hence we procure services in these instances where we can do the work ourselves uh, actually we uh, because it's an economic activity that is of why course. you have to appoint or employ a, a full-time nanny or a full-time domestic uh, person to help with the chores i mean chores at home so it is an economic activity that needs to really be regulated and women must benefit out of it. And it's almost as you're saying, it's women empowering other women by making it an economic activity whereas if they were doing it themselves, they're not being paid for making sure that the house is looked after, that it's cleaned, that the cooking is done, that the children are doing their homework, that all of that maintenance that we all need in our lives happens. You will know that you wouldn't 
be able to be here or even myself I mean as clean as and beautiful as I look if I had not had any help at home of somebody who's able to help me because I will not be able to do it you see we are sometimes we are super women we try to be super women we multitasking it is our strength but it sometimes is a, a, a downfall because you are not able to do all the things at the same time and one way or the other some way somehow one is lagging and one suffers so we need to recognize that and i think it also puts out the wrong perception to other women that someone can do everything at once no yes definitely it's, it's impossible so we need to utilize our, our enablers. Yes. Do you think there will ever be a point where that unpaid labor is, is recognized, either it is redistributed to uh, across the household equally, or that that unlaid, unpaid labor becomes a paid labor? I think from a policy and legislative point of view, uh, we are trying to address this uh, to arrive at that that uh, point remember currently we we are just we've just uh, recently we are on a process of reviewing actually we, we are, I think we have approved paternity leave now for males now you will understand if you are a man you are a husband you are a boyfriend you you are expecting a child you will actually be now entitled to a, a paid a fully paid uh, paternity leave and you go to our services point and register for unemployed I mean your, your your paternity leave and you get paid for that so it's a milestone so why can't we so we are optimistic actually that we are getting there with this one I'm sure looking into the future thinking about the future we'll have to regulate uh, uh, mothers who are st stay home moms who are taking care of the household uh, to what extent can we talk with the legislators to say how do we quantify the work that they do and they must be uh, receive some money from government? This intervention of looking at the, the paid paternity leave, I see that in itself of, of saying that recognizing the distribution of the load, that this is your responsibility as parents, not as a mother as a mother we are expecting our male counterparts our husbands our boyfriends our partners uh, we're expecting that with the paid leave uh, paternity leave that we'll be getting they are not going to utilize it to go on a drinking spree or some sort of socializing but it will be utilized productively in terms of them having to help the mother a, a, you know a new mother with a new baby with the household chores so that the mother can be able to rest and be able to take care of the child it must be a joint venture it must be a, a job that is done by both of the mother both the mother and the father so i think it will to a certain extent it will relieve of the the the, the, the huge load of work from the mother mm. emotional uh, stress of you know just labor uh, but being there as a father i think it will actually take us somewhere we are actually changing the society i think and society is one of the biggest hurdles to to change. We see patriarchy coming through, and all of these definitely, these elements. Definitely. Now, as deputy minister of employment and labour, we've had this conversation offline as well that education is a vital tool to empower individuals and societies. 
Even basic levels of literacy and numeracy have had profound effects on the well-being of women, whether it is knowing how to control fertility or reduce child mortality, improving the health of the homes, and I think, very importantly, on reducing poverty. UNESCO, for instance, noted an additional year of schooling equated to a 10% increase in earnings. In your opinion, are we doing enough to ensure that the message of education is being spread across every forum possible and, and passed from mothers to daughters, particularly in underprivileged communities? I think um, you'll agree with me that one of the things that we need to be proud of as South Africa is our literacy levels amongst women, uh, especially amongst young women. It surpasses many other uh, African countries. Uh, and and especially developing countries because we are a developing country. So uh, I think this survey actually translate. It is also translated into the number of women who are graduating from institutions of higher learning, and and being uh, the leading example in the reversal of child mortality rate in the world, among others. Um, taking into cognizance that we have the highest rate of HIV infections in the country. Um, and, and these achievements we ought to be proud of. Uh, this has also translated in longer life expectancies uh, and economic participation of women. So we, we have to acknowledge uh, uh, the face of poverty and unemployment, which is still existing, especially among young black uh, uh, women. But we have done a lot, and, and this should never be taken for granted. But we need to, trans to, to translate these achievements into a more equal society, taking into consideration that we are actually the most unequal societies in the world, and the inequality has its own manifestations, especially uh, more in, in a more patriarchal foundations, because uh, that is actually the challenge. And when you're looking at, at policy changes or, uh, let's say, implementation of policy. Do you look at it with a gender lens in the department? <laughs> Not really. We, uh, But we have to strive for, you know, remember where we come from. We cannot just change overnight. Um, uh, fortunately, for the first time in, in, in since our democracy, now 25 years into the, our democracy, um, uh, we have a cabinet that is 50-50. 50 big, women, 50 Big achievement. Minutes. I mean, uh, ex excluding the president and the deputy president, but for the first time we have 50% of women representatives. And I think it is also at this point that we need to thank the the women who are in the w ruling party, the Women's League in particular, um, who have actually spearheaded this uh, campaign of making sure that... Um, uh, women are fully represented. We don't look at things. There's no competition between males and females. But the fact that our country's demographics are such that women are actually more than males. Right. We are al almost over f 52 52% percent of women. And women, actually, the statistics, you look into the voting patterns, women are the ones who go to the polls and vote. They are loyal to the system of democracy they vote and because they have hope that today is better than yesterday and surely tomorrow will be better than today so they have hope that things will change for the better and when change things change for the better for women uh, obviously like when we know that when you educate a woman you educate the nation because the woman carries that burden 
of having to take care of the entire village and the entire family. So this is, uh, for us, it's quite an achievement that we are where we are. And even the ruling party itself, strive, the ANC strives to make sure that in all its structures, there is, we achieve the 50%. That is why where there is a discrepancy, where you realize that we have premiers, more male premiers than females. We took a, a conscious decision to say, let all the speakers be females. Even in those provinces of Free State and Pumalanga where the premiers are females, but they must, the speakers must also be females. And we say also where the premiers are males, the executive of 10 should be in such a way that 60% becomes females and only 40% for males because we want to elevate and to show our commitment as the ruling party that we want we are serious about the issue of gender equality and parity and we said we shouldn't stay at 50% each even where there is a possibility for women to go beyond the 50% threshold why not? So we have done that, actually, ex for, with the exception of Gauteng, of course. Uh, but we have actually instructed Gauteng to make sure that they do the necessary change and make sure that uh, there is 60, 40, and females are in majority in terms of the executive. That's a really novel intervention. And I remember reading back on things like the with, with Beijing and all of the elements where people were talking about women attaining... 30 percent yes but if you look at that when you think logically and i think this was from um dr pumzile mlabonuka yes, she was the saying platform she was saying that if you say that 30 percent for women then you are legitimizing that 70 percent is for men. for men so when we hit the 30 quota we're not going to take any more women that's where we started i mean from 30 percent we we might not have achieved it but we we managed to incrementally increase it up to 50 percent even it, if it has taken us so long we think that at some point we'll lead uh, we'll be more in majority in most actually we are doing it in the public sector but we are th saying the private sector must also come into being most of the ceos of companies are males absolutely so right. we need to change the status quo but how do you think that the private sector can take more learnings from the public sector? I, I think there should be a dialogue. We should open up to a dialogue uh, where we engage uh, the, the private sector to say, to what extent are you partnering with the rest of the country to transform our society and make sure that... Uh, because whether you like it or not, most instances where the institutions are women-led, they are mostly successful. And often, mostly su often they are mostly successful. What I've I experienced is that sometimes women are put up to, to positions where they're almost on the verge of these organizations going into to points of failure. It's almost as saying, well, the woman had it and it was the woman's fault that the organization failed. It's always the case. Uh, but we are trying to prove uh, everybody wrong that actually uh, the, the opposite is the truth. Most often than not, institutions are rescued by women and they succeed. We can actually do that comparison. I think you must do that research and it will give you the, the conclusions that I'm talking about. Well, you're, you're right. Our research has been done, I think, by <laughs> Credit Suisse on the diversity you know. and importantly, how it impacts on, on the financial bottom line of companies. Of course. But you're, you're right. Maybe, maybe we must take this up as, a, as, a, as another 
venture on being able to promote women in in the public sorry rather in the private sector yes. into elevated positions yes you are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we are talking to the Deputy Minister of Employment and Labor, Ms. Boitomelo Elizabeth Molloy. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Deputy Minister, we are currently celebrating Women's Month in South Africa, which presents an opportunity to reflect on both the past as well as the the future in terms of, of gender equality. We've mentioned legislation and quotas as being a couple of interventions to, to help accelerate progress. In your views, what else do you think needs to be done to, to help close some of the gender gaps? I current, currently, I think, uh, uh, as government, because as government, we've got the responsibility to make sure that we 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 create a, an environment which is conducive. So the issues of the gender gaps uh, is not necessarily a responsibility of government alone, but through government programs, we can be able to actually transform and change the mindset of our people. And obviously, also through institutions of higher learning, uh, we have to also say um, uh, to what extent can we uh, put through institutions of higher learning some programs that talks to the gender issues. But over and above that, the issue of gender parity and stuff, I think it starts from the home. How we uh, groom our kids, uh, how we socialize them. I'm thinking how we, we socialize our children should actually work towards making sure that the outcomes, the output becomes such that there is no gender segregation in terms of the boys and the girls, how they are supposed to be perceived or which chores they are supposed to do. Deputy Minister, turning towards more of a, a personal aspect, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who have made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of work is about the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So in your opinion, what would you say have been some of your key drivers? <laughs> you know, um, it's very uh, tr- a tricky question, I must say. But I must start from from the beginning that um, I think my my journey uh, from the beginning um, uh, of time um, uh, when I was in in primary I was in the debating team I was debating as early as when I was in like standard four at the time um, uh, and when I went to high school I got involved into the SRC work, into COSAS, which was student uh, movement at the time. But uh, I think, among others, uh, as I evolved, um, uh, the ruling party having exposed me to some of the unimaginable uh, responsibilities. For instance, as an, uh, at an early age, I was appointed um, in the ruling party, by the ruling party after its unbending, uh, to work uh, at the office in Western Transvaal, then when we still had provinces as regions um, like Transvaal, Northern Transvaal. So I come from the 
Western Transvaal area of Pochifstrom. That's where I was born and bred. So um, then I was appointed in 1991 as an organizer. So my responsibility, I was actually the only female uh, organizer appointed at the time amongst men. Um, so I will work from the entirety of Western Transvaal. You remember it included parts of Buputatswana uh, and including up to the points where you the areas currently now are falling into the, the, the Limpopo province. I, I, I would go to Northam, I would go to Tawazimbi, up to Elizaras. Those are the areas where I used to work. And, and I worked uh, in that position for five years. And I was subsequently transferred to being an administrator of the office. Uh, and at the time, the region was, was is, is like in the form of a province because you had to take responsibility for the entirety. So I worked as an administrator for then eight years, from ninety five to two thousand and three. So um, uh, and uh, as an administrator, the I think it prepared me for the work that I'm at because remember. Uh, you cannot just wake up and become successful. You had to go through trials and tribulations. You had to do mis- some mistakes uh, in the process of you moving up. And subsequently, in while I was working full-time for the African National Congress as an administrator, I was also appointed a part-time councillor in 2000 um, uh, in the Matlosana City Council, which used to be called Clarkstop City Council. So I was appointed, and uh, because we were the new batch of councillors at the time, I was given a role of uh, being a chief whip uh, for the time being of a period of three years. And in two, 20, um, 2003, I was then appointed a full-time member of the mayoral committee, uh, working in the executive of the mayor. Then uh, I was responsible for a portfolio dealing with local economic development and corporate communications. So I take it that all this combined work uh, had prepared me for the work that I'm in because in 2006 during elections, I was then uh, appointed uh, or elected to the position of the executive mayor from 2006 to 2016. So it was like ten, a years. 10 years of unbroken service to the people of um, we used to call the municipality was called Southern District Municipality, say the like district municipality uh, during that time. And uh, we, in the process in 20, 2007, we, we, we went on a process of public participation to change the name from Southern District Municipality to Dr. Kenneth Kaunda D- District Municipality. I mean, uh, we did this uh, um, in honor of former Zambian president because uh, we felt that the role he played uh, for Africa and for South Africa in particular and the support he gave to all the liberation movements and political parties which he housed in Zambia. Our headquarters of the ruling party was in Zambia, remember? So he did actually more to everybody in Africa more than he did to the people of Zambia. That is where actually at some point they hosted him. But we, we felt that why not? Uh, because this is a living legend, living giant, somebody who is alive, who has done so much for all of us. What is the honor that we can bestow unto him? So we decided to 
call our municipality, Dr. Kenneth Kaunda District Municipality. And which, actually the quote I made earlier on, it's his quote uh, of, uh, he likes when he addressed, because we invited him to our council at some point, when he speaks everywhere, wherever he is, he tells you that, uh, remember his motto first and foremost of Zambia, one Zambia, one, one Zambia, one, Zambia, one, one people, nation. One nation. So, he, he, that's why Zambia at some point used to be very united. Now he then said, um, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. So that is something very profound to us that has actually kept us going. And, and further to say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So those are some things that really continue to resonate in some of us to be where we are. We continue to take uh, uh, leadership uh, in, you know, from such legions, living legions. And we are where we are, we think still that because of such people. And for that matter, uh, the issue of my key drivers, I think, you know, perseverance, uh, among others, um, steadfastness, being focused to f the needs of our people. I think it's my passion, actually. Uh, my passion has always been the fact that I need to put the interests of the people before my personal interest. And I think it's the culture that I've all also taught to my kids. And I will tell them, if somebody is, does not have bread, we better not have bread and give that bread to somebody else. Because Rona, we are advantaged. We know we can go and get some bread somewhere else. But that thing, because also of my background, I, I, I come from a very poor family. I think almost half of my life I lived a very poor life. We stayed in a shack um, uh, from a very for a very long time at some point of my life I went to school without shoes so I think that then translated into my having to focus or channel this energy and passion towards helping others and I think that is something that I, makes me sleep well at night that I'm helping people and uh, uh, I, I've, I've been doing that forever and ever and and forever I, I think uh, because I was groomed by the African National Congress that we need to be selfless. We need to show compassion. We need to make sure that ours is to uplift and improve the lives of those who are less fortunate than us, not of our own personal making. So I, I think that's something that drives me. That's That keeps me actually uh, awake at night, hurry. Um, there are people who are sleeping in the streets who are not ha who had nothing to eat, and and that is why even in my legacy projects where I used to be the mayor, uh, we we have s we couldn't achieve much, but we managed to do little to enhance uh, our people. At least we have left the legacy where, in the community, the entirety of the community of Dr. Kenneth Kaunda, in the municipalities that you find there, we have free Wi-Fi. You go to one area town of Fenderstorp of Pochistrum, Ikaheng, you go to Clarkstorp in, 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 in communities, in schools, you'll see even elderly people, you'll see them next to a schoolyard because they are downloading something. You might not know why they are there or you see cars parked there. But this is some of the things that said our kids does not have access to the internet. How do we help them to access the internet for them to be able to do research work? And that's part of reducing the inequality, yeah, inequality because that's because one of the channels. They will never, and remember the data is very expensive. I know because I have to give my kids 
data all the time. My daughter can't survive with 20 gig. I mean, 10 gig says, mommy, is nothing. So I know what they're going through. So, but just think about it, what it does to our people, what it does to a person who is a, a street vendor who is there selling tomatoes. He can get locked in and actually begin to advertise on WhatsApp, on Facebook, whatever his trade, whatever is they are selling. So it enhances even further that economic activity I was talking about earlier on to say, this is what our people are looking for. What can we do? We cannot do much, but we can do up to a particular point. And and we continue to say, our people must not, our people are expecting government to do everything. But we know that government cannot do everything. But so, I think with this, it's about teaching people to help themselves. Yes, that is actually what we are doing. Actually, even in the programs that we want to continue to run, we empower people as a department through trainings. And and we we train various uh, courses. Uh, we've got we are partnering with other service providers. Our entities are doing the training with various sitters. We uh, I was actually even challenging them to say, what is it that we can do to to change the status quo, just to disrupt the status quo a, a little bit, instead of us continuing to train people, and sometimes you train them, but sometimes they are un unemployable. How can we change the status quo by actually training our people to be entrepreneurs? Train them differently. You incubate them, give them the necessary support, and then you link them with the markets. They become the job creators themselves. So that then you remove and reduce the burden of government to be the job drivers, job creators. But you empower your people to make sure that they are the ones then who created your jobs themselves. And it does so much more than economic value. It's about building. We were talking about the morality yeah, yeah. and the, the, the confidence. Imagine if you have trained a, a cooperative down in a rural community and there is a clinic or a school in, or a hospital. They are using toilet paper. Why can't we train this cooperative and you link it? You make sure that they're compliant and the product, the quality assurance that is done, that the product is of high quality. Then that cooperative supply this clinic or the hospital. Imagine that work, uh, the community, there will be a economic activity. How many people will be employed by that cooperative? Everything. Imagine if there is a cooperative doing um, a uniform for school kids around the community and every parent buys their school uniform from this cooperative. Now, it reduces the burden of government to have to be the mother and father of these kids who might not be having parents. Uh, but we, we have to do it together. Now we need to change the mindset. It goes back to that point I made. Or we need to be continuously and we need to be patient with our people because our people are impatient because they've been unemployed for too long. Remember you said there are those who are no more even seeking jobs anymore, those who are no more in training, those who are just sitting at home have lost hope. But we are changing the mindset to say there is hope and just continue to have faith. And therefore we need to begin to correlate, to correct, do facilitation. Our department must then facilitate amongst other departments, whatever they are doing, small business, what are you doing? Uh, we have a program, we as employment and labor will train people for you, fund them so that then you link them with the markets and then they are able to have jobs that are sustainable. So that that is basically uh, what we are about. I think that's a, a noble initiative. Thank and you so much. Lastly, Deputy Minister, because we are unfortunately running out of time, 
As we close our conversation today for Women's Month, could you share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to young ladies that are listening to us? <laughs> I, I, I would say to young ladies uh, I, I, and, and young women, uh, the future looks bright. Our future looks bright for women and the future is women. The future is women and these women must have confidence in themselves because we have not yet actually unleashed the potential that is within us as women. We have much energy. We have that. Uh, we are brave. We 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 can do. We are super women. So the future is awaiting. You know, we have seen the future. The, the future looks bright for women. So the women must just. Uh, be able to be patient with themselves and they must among other things our women our young women must go and capacitate themselves because we need a future that is having skilled women in particular because it, it is a necessity and for us to be able to be taken serious as women we need to capacitate ourselves to prepare ourselves for the future we need uh, women who will go on to space and explore life in space. Or there is life uh, beyond uh, the sky because the sky is no more the limit. So we uh, we want young women to dream about being in maybe in our lifetime we'll have a young female president. So women, young women, must see themselves in that future as young ministers, as presidents, as deputy presidents, as as um, uh, CEOs of ESCOM, uh, CEOs of different uh, parastatals, our SOEs, and women must must avail themselves because the opportunities are there. So they, these opportunities are waiting for or upon these young women to stand up and be counted and say, here we are, we are ready, Tuma Mina, Tuma, as like the president has said, Tumamena and Kaoleza, we are ready to serve. They must be ready to serve and they must be selfless. We need a new brigade of young women who will be ready to go there, out there and be go-getters and do that which our nation is expecting of them to do. They will be, this is a game changer for women. So this is the opportunity that actually all of us have been waiting for in our lifetime. By the way, my granny had to vote to vote in 1994 at the age of i think 90 or over eight over 80 or nine my grandmother passed on at 103 years and then she voted for the first time in 1994 she was like uh, 90 something so so imagine my grandmother having to wait until she was 90 years to go and vote for the first time but then the opportunities are presenting themselves to us now at our age what about the, those who are coming so the future is for the young ones who are here now so they must do everything in their power to make sure that they grab they grab every moment every opportunity that will enhance them to be counted in the future or they will be left behind thank you for that vision of the future and that energy of go out and get it yes it's waiting for them Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. Melka, and your studio. It has been nice and wonderful to be here.
Thank you so much. We wish you every success in this important portfolio. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to the Deputy Minister of Employment and Labour, Ms. Boitomelo Elizabeth Molloy. Mm-hmm.